Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And I'm going to read aloud as you read silently from verses 1 through 15. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The disingenuous condition of the religious leaders of Jesus' day was at the root of the bondage that held so many people captive to a religious system that led to a false sense of security and unbridled anxiety. Last week, our time in Matthew 6 revealed the reality that anxiety, to a high degree, is the result of one's personal hypocrisy. Legalism, the idea that I'm better than you, will lead to my own anxiety. For those who believe that they are better fulfillers of the law, better obeyers of God's commands than others, based on their own personal and intrinsic ability, they will find themselves saturated with anxiety. Because while attempting to persuade others that they're performing well and probably succeeding in doing so, inside they know they're actually not performing well because they know that their heart attitudes don't match that of Jesus Christ, he who is humble. That's the attitude of Christ to which you and I are called in Philippians chapter 2, that we would consider others as more important than self. Legalism does the exact opposite. Legalism says, no, no, I'm better than you. Why aren't you as good as me? What's wrong with you? Until you arrive to my standard and my practice, then I'm going to look down on you and I'm going to be angry with you. No one would articulate it that way, but that's what it is. A willingness to operate, function that way is expressive of a lack of willingness to actually trust in the fullness of the gospel, to actually trust in what Christ accomplished. The one who is unwilling to trust in what Christ accomplished needs to believe, wants to believe, feels that he should believe in his own accomplishment. The result is anxiety. 
So the solution to anxiety to a large degree is the gospel. The liberating reality of Christ's atonement and his new life-giving resurrection. His resurrection that displays and provides. It displays and it provides power over sin and over death. And let me say it this way. It displays and provides power over the sin and death of hypocrisy. But until one is willing to confess that hypocrisy, and by the way, a lack of willingness to confess hypocrisy is hypocrisy, but until he's willing to confess that, he will be bound up, really imprisoned by his own hypocrisy, by his own legalism. Wanting to persuade others that he's achieving what he's actually not, the sad reality is that that person does a great job of persuading others to be legalistic. Persuading others, you know, while convincing others that he or she is, in fact, performing well leads to the influence upon others that they need to perform just as well. This was the mastered practice of the Pharisees. They were masters at hypocrisy. So to be a hypocrite is to look for affirmation from those you attempt to fool into thinking you're the real thing, and the Pharisees had mastered that while persuading their subjects to believe that they were fulfilling the law and all of their additional laws in the Mishnah, the the oral code, the oral law, the unwritten law, they created an unbearable burden for those who hoped to have some favor with God and were bamboozled into believing that it could be achieved. Imagine being persuaded by spiritual leaders that they were achieving spiritual perfection. And all the while doing so was persuading you to believe that if you didn't do the same, you were actually condemned. That you sat under the condemnation of God because you weren't fulfilling God's law. Jesus had attacked the system of hypocrisy and highway robbery when he cleansed the temple back in chapter 2. When he cleansed the house of God, leading his disciples to realize that it was he about whom David was speaking when he said, zeal for your house consumes me. And it wasn't the physical house. Jesus really made it clear that he was talking about himself being the temple of God, but ultimately that the people of God are the temple of God. And in our era, dispensationally speaking, the church, not Israel, of today, the church is the temple of God. Not this building. We're blessed to have added 4,200 square feet next door and looking forward to how the Lord will use that, particularly in our children's ministry. But when you talk about going to church, you're not talking about the building. In fact, I'd encourage you to do away that terminology entirely. Talk about participating as the church. You don't go to church. You are the church. Because you are the church, because you need the church, and the church needs you. It's critical that we have a richer and deeper and increasingly richer and increasingly deeper understanding of what was taking place in this Pharisee's life as Jesus exposed him to his own heart. It is Phariseeism, beloved, to claim to be in Christ and to want nothing to do with his body. 
I would go so far as to say it's hypocrisy to claim to be in Christ and to want to have a convenient relationship with his body. As Jesus continues to expose us to this reality, he really begins in a very particularly personal way with this man, Nicodemus. As I said, the Pharisees were living as master hypocrites. They were living in disguise. They were masters of disguise. And while on the brink of being exposed by Jesus, they wanted him, the unmasker of their hypocrisy, to be stopped. They wanted him put to death. There were a number of times where they tried to pull that off. Well, together, today, as we look at God's Word, today's message while we're calling it the unmasking of a well-polished hypocrite, part one, it's really more of an introduction, while next week will be a fuller exposition of the depth and meaning of the passage. So whereas normally what we would do is work through the details of a passage and then work through the following details and the following details, today what we're really doing is taking more of a 30,000-foot view of this passage. Next week we'll drill down deeper. We'll go underground and pull up the greater depths of the passage. As you can see there in your bulletin, we will see that two factors in a nighttime conversation expose the unsaved condition of the premier religious leader of Jesus' day so that you may avoid the eternal destruction of spiritual self-deceit. Nicodemus was self-deceived. The term Pharisee in our day is the equivalent of the word hypocrite. Not so in its origin. Not so originally. See, after performing his first miracle, the amazing act of taking simple water and making it savory wine, bypassing the fermentation and clarification process that would have taken at least one to three weeks, Then the aging process of at least a month, and for really good wine, at least a year, not to mention the time that it would have taken to plant, cultivate, harvest, crush, and prepare the fruit. And while it was a simple matter of thought for Jesus to cause this transaction for plain water to become pure wine, it was the best wine, certainly the best wine ever, the richest, purest, sweetest, fullest ever drunk by a human at that time or since. And it was a miracle. As we pointed out before, you didn't even see Jesus saying anything. As was said in the original creation, let there be light. There was none of that. It was a very subtle move, back to which one must have looked, realizing that it was Jesus and Jesus alone who could have done it. It was a miracle. And this drew the attention of the multitudes who began to follow him with a superficial devotion. As you increasingly read through the book of John, or progressively read through the book of John, what you will see that there is non-salvific belief. There are those, if you will, who would believe the facts. And many times, and you, you have probably found this to be true, many times... There are those who are inclined to hear faithful exposition so they can apply it to other people's lives with little or no interest in really receiving it with eagerness as the Bereans did 
as the Thessalonians did. There was a superficial devotion in the heart of many, really the multitudes who followed Jesus. Who wouldn't follow the seeming magician, you know, pulling off, bringing people back to life from the dead? Who wouldn't want to see that again? It was the euphoria of really the secondary elements of the miracles, not the source of the miracles that drew them. And ultimately, as you know, further down the road in the book of John, as Jesus proclaims that you must eat the bread of life, declaring himself to be the bread of life, even his disciples abandoned him. The miracles weren't enough to keep them hanging in. This is one basic reason why we would say about the seeker-friendly movement that the more you do these euphoric, amazing stunts in the worship service for the purpose of drawing people in, the more you have to keep doing those things. On the other hand, if there is just a pure and simple devotion to the purity of God's Word, in particular the climax of God's Word, which is the gospel, then it's the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit that draws people. That kind of teaching does nothing to really draw the unbeliever by the flesh. Except in the one vein where the false convert will use faithful exposition to beat other people over the head rather than himself to be changed by it. As I said, the miracles drew the attention of the multitudes who began to follow Jesus with an artificial devotion. While his miracles proved his deity, the crowds displayed a non-salvific belief, a non-saving faith. They believed, but they didn't believe enough. How do we know that? Because John reports to us that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's from our passage last week. He didn't need anybody to tell him what was in their heart. He was and is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows not just the general condition of man's heart. He knows the particular condition of every man's heart. Years ago in a men's Bible study, as we were discussing the depravity of man, one man spoke up and said, you know, I'm sort of immune to this. And we said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I've never sinned. Really? Help us with your journey to realizing this. He said, well, I, you know, I became a Christian when I was five, and I haven't really done anything wrong since then. Someone spoke up and said, so you don't need a Savior. Oh, no, no, I need a Savior because everybody needs a Savior. And so I said, well, why, why would you need a Savior if you've never sinned? He said, because I'm a sinner. You're a sinner, but you've never sinned. Well, generally speaking, everyone is a sinner. You see how that works? So often, there are those who are willing to adhere to enough of Scripture to say, well, these doctrines are generally true, but don't you dare try to apply them to me. It's like the person who's willing to say, I got issues in my life. And then when you begin to address them, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. No, that's not true. No, that's not true. Well, what are they? Well, you know, I've just got them. Well, what are they? 
Well, I don't know. But everybody's got issues. Well, what are yours? Well, I don't know. See, this is the this is the practical manifestation, the practical outworking of hypocrisy. It's an adherence to sound doctrine on a superficial level, maybe even on a prolific level, meaning there's a great willingness to communicate it. You know, there are plenty of people in teaching positions who are effectively involved in communicating sound doctrine, except when a mirror is held to their life. It's actually not unusual. This was the case of the Pharisees. Sound doctrine. I mean, these, these guys were theologians' premier. They knew doctrine. They knew truth. And yet it had no life-altering impact other than producing a passionate willingness to persuade others to believe that they had it going on spiritually. And so they lived in constant anxiety. And you see that anxiety in Nicodemus. You see that in our text. So as we look at this nighttime conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, a couple things I want to point out to you. First is an artificial character. It's the artificial character of the Pharisees. It's important that we go to Scripture to see what the general condition, really the pervasive condition of all the Pharisees was, those whom Nicodemus represented. Now, he didn't come to represent them. He really came to kind of wiggle out of his connection to them. At least he was investigating that. The word Pharisee means separated, a separated one, one set apart. The origin of the Pharisaical coalition, the coalition of Pharisees, is in Ezra chapter 6, verse 19, where it reads, On the fourteenth day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves." It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, you're probably thinking, well, you know, this sounds very much like New Testament Christianity. You know, God predestined us to be set apart When you think of that to which God has called you, many times people will think, well, you know, he calls us to eternal life. He calls us to walk with Jesus. He he calls us to, uh, you know, be committed to the saints. Uh, There are a number of things, really, exercising your spiritual giftedness within the context of the body. But the primary issue is being set apart. And that can be easily traced back to the Old Testament in a number of places. Leviticus 19 starts by giving us the Levitical Code, which was really nothing more than an effort of the Lord to say, this is what you must do and this is what you must not do for the primary purposes of being set apart. For the purpose of being set apart. Some of the things to which God called Israel in that Levitical Code 
were not necessarily good in and of themselves, and many of the things to which, uh, from which he prohibited them were not intrinsically bad. The point was be set apart. Well, as we look at the New Testament code, we're called to humility. We're called to gentleness, patience, love, kindness. So all of those things makes us set apart. One of the greatest issues within that code, if I can call it that, is the matter of genuineness. That it is a heartfelt reality. That good conduct, that good works, they're born out of a willful intention. A passion for God's glory and a passion for the good of the elect. A legitimate willingness to invest in others because you want to not because of some sort of obligatory commitment in your life, because this is what Christians do. But you want to. You, know, you long to be with the body. You long to serve the body. You long to be encouraged and strengthened by the body. You don't pick and choose what elements to engage. You, you, know, you get places early because you want to be with the body of Christ. You want to you pour into them. You, You want to experience the joy of being edified and strengthened by them. Your conversation is not rooted in sports or weather or your job. It's rooted in the cross and the resurrection. And even as you talk about things like the weather and sports and your job, still your heart is bound with those with whom you are set apart by the power of the cross and the resurrection, and so you can let your hair down. You can really enjoy that relational interaction because you know that you have that bond because you see it manifest, and they see it manifest in you as well. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day who initially devoted themselves to this concept, really this practice of being set apart, found this concept in Scripture. Nehemiah 9, verse 2 says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So this confession was a call for they themselves to not make the, mis- the same mistakes of their predecessors, of their ancestors, but to be willing to be committed to the commands of God in a heartfelt way. So the Pharisees started off well, <laughs> because this was their desire, was to be set apart. But they went off the rails As leaders, their intention originally was to preserve the law with a stricter view of cleanness, but eventually became more concerned with the issues of law and exercised tremendous authority over the Jewish people in requiring from them a strict adherence to the law. They wanted initially to preserve the law for the purpose of spiritual or personal or really corporate cleanness, purity. But eventually, their adherence to the law became idolatry. It was their thinking that they had this, or at least wanted to believe, they had this intrinsic ability to obey and even fulfill the law themselves. And therefore, they wanted to persuade others to do the same. That built their power structure. 
The more people they could persuade to believe that they were actually fulfilling the law, the more people they could persuade to support them financially. The Jewish scholar Emil Schurer says, They had the bulk of the nation as their ally, and women especially were in their hands. They had the greatest influence upon the congregation so that all acts of public worship, prayers, and sacrifices were performed according to their injunctions. Their sway over the masses was so absolute that they could obtain a hearing even when they said anything against the king or the high priest. Consequently, they were the most capable of counteracting the design of the kings. Hence, too, the Sadducees in their official acts adhered to the commands of the Pharisees, because otherwise the multitude would not have tolerated them. The Pharisees and Sadducees started out on some uh, equal level of power and authority and influence, but eventually the Pharisees outgrew that, and so even the Sadducees said, we better join them lest we get beaten by them. So the Pharisees were really the ruling hypocrites of the day. And so, even today, when you think of the word Pharisee, you think of the word hypocrite. The root definition is an actor. Now, that doesn't make professional acting bad in and of itself, but it does mean that the person who is a professional actor on a daily basis in the regularities of his life, he's a Pharisee. And it's an appropriate term for that person. It's the right term It can be used unkindly and may not be the best choice of words when attempting to help someone be exposed to their hypocrisy. But ultimately, a study of Phariseeism in the Scripture will help that person and will help you help that person. You know, maybe this was you. Maybe this is you. Maybe today you find your greatest joy in exposing others to your greatness. You wouldn't say it that way. Even if that's true about you, you would not say it that way as it would give you up. The person who walks in pharisaical hypocrisy doesn't want to be known as that. The whole point of Phariseeism is to pretend. It's to convince others that you're not a Pharisee. It's to convince others that you're the real thing. But Phariseeism ultimately is exposed. Ultimately, God will expose all things. Let me tell you something. Let me just be real real practical and real clear at this point. So much of personal spiritual growth is the exposure of personal hypocrisy. And the one who is deliberately willful involved in his own exposure is the one who's maturing. It's confession of sin. You know, the person who you think you're close to, but you never hear any confession of sin unless it's somebody else's. That's not a mature Christian. There's some possibility that person is a complete hypocrite if he never confesses sin, ever. The greater involvement for you and me and other people's lives is to remove the log from our own eye because that person needs your help in removing the speck. Well, these Pharisees who became hypocrites, such that the word Pharisee means hypocrite, 
or exposed in a number of passages throughout Scripture. I'm going to give you somewhat of a concordance from this point forward with regard to where the Pharisees are exposed in Scripture. In Mark 2, beginning with verse 15, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And see, the more hypocritical a a true believer is, is the less influence he has on those who are completely hypocritical. You have no evangelistic effect on those who you would like to see come to Christ when you yourself are operating with hypocrisy. Matthew 23, I'm just going to read to you most of Matthew 23. You can read along in your own Bible if you like, but I'm going to read you most of the chapter. Matthew 23, beginning with verse one, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, 
straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets." Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." And so accused of, and rightly so, really condemned, really indicted for their hypocrisy. Woe to you, was Jesus' words to them. And you might wonder, how in the world did Jesus ever come to be known as a loving person when he goes after people this way? It is his love for them that he would be involved in the exposure of their hypocrisy. Why? Because spiritual hypocrisy leads to an eternity of torment. And those who practiced it so prolifically, so effectively, were so effective in it that they had fooled themselves in many cases. So this display of commitment to the truth was nothing short of the most loving thing Jesus could have done with them. The one who has himself been so committed to hypocrisy that he's willing to involve himself in engaging others in that same hypocrisy is so far down the path of self-deception that he needs to be exposed publicly. And so you and I have the command in Scripture that when a leader, an elder in the church is engaging in unrepentant sin. He must be rebuked publicly. When have you ever seen that happen? And why not? Because of the fear of man. How could they do that to someone? Because God commands it. And Jesus exemplified it. This is not something over which you and I must be all amped up on a daily basis, you know, walking around as kind of the church watchdog, looking for others to be found out or caught in their hypocrisy. But it is for us to acknowledge that Jesus went after these Pharisees with a loving, faithful vengeance, a love for his Father, a love for the church, and really a love for the lost, that they would realize the significance of their condition. 
in Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You could be thinking, well, the scribes and Pharisees, I mean, they obviously weren't righteous. That's not hard to exceed. But that's not what Jesus is saying. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was a legitimate, superficial righteousness. What do I mean by that? They practiced conduct that was righteous. They did right things. And as Jesus warned, be careful that you adhere to their doctrine, but not their lifestyle. Much of their lifestyle was right, but so much of their lifestyle was not right. And that wrong lifestyle was driven by wrong heart attitudes, such that the things that they did that were right were useless. They were useless. It's like the person who says, well, you know, I'm not always involved in the church, but I'm always helping people. Well, that's not faithfulness to Christ or his church. And it's clearly driven by a self-rewarding heart attitude that says, you know, I make the terms, not, not God. I make the terms. I decide when and where and how I help people and when and where and how I serve people. You know, I can determine those things. And again, like I've often said, that's a knee-jerk evangelical response to the hyper-control of the Roman Catholic system. Well, because Roman Catholic leadership has exercised super hyper-control of the people, the evangelical response sadly became, Christianity is about me and Jesus. And so there's no willingness to adhere to the whole of what God has called us to as believers. He says, you will never enter the kingdom unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So whatever degree of an appearance of righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees displayed, that's the low watermark. The fact of the matter is that it was all useless. But the sad reality is that the culture in which Jesus was speaking, and very much uh, the same today in our culture, the reality is that people think that they're right with the Lord. They at least want to think that they're right with the Lord because they've got some consistency of conduct in public. And that's where their hope is. Ask them, how do you know you're going to heaven? And they will point to something they did. Friends, that is the highest expression of pharisaical hypocrisy. You don't see Paul pointing to something he did. You see Paul pointing to the cross. Don't let that be a platitude. Don't let that be just some kind of offhand statement that you make when people ask about what it means to be a Christian. Oh, you look to the cross. Tell them what that means. Know what that means. Know what imputation is. Understand what repentance is, what propitiation is. You say, oh, those are some big words. They're all in the Bible, and they're all critical to you understanding what a Christian really is. Your hope is not in your performance. Your hope is in Christ's performance. What he did was, in fact, sufficient for your salvation. And the result would be that you would, in fact, be engaged in the works for which you were predestined, if, in fact, you are in Christ. 
In Luke eleven thirty seven, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at a table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You see that? There was a careful devotion to painting the outside. <laughs> you know, it's like the person whose front yard, you know, the curb appeal is just incredible, and you go in, and man, the house is a mess. Now, if that's in process, that's one thing. But if that's, you know, something that's been going on for a long, long time, and every effort is made to just present oneself well in the neighborhood, but in reality, what's going on inside the home, that's reflective of this being a whitewashed tomb. I can remember as a kid going to visit my dad's gravestone, and even in recent years going back there, I was always a little bit taken aback by the size of some of the monuments. You know, those kind that have a door on them? It's like, what's that door for anyway? I suppose there's some eschatological reference there in some people's minds that, you know, maybe they're going to walk out of that door when Jesus returns. I don't know. I don't want to read too much into it, but it seems a little odd. But I can remember thinking these people must have a lot of money. Nothing wrong with having a lot of money, but... Um, let me just tell you, if that ever were to happen to me and you were involved in what takes place after my death, don't spend it on a big box with a door. It's not worth it. The Pharisees wanted the acclaim. You know, they wanted the largest monuments to represent them. You know, the guy that builds his own statue in his front yard. You remember me telling that story about the, the guy that my sister worked for years ago? A little bit of a narcissist, as, as she described him. One time they had a Christmas party, a company Christmas party over at uh, his house, and she said nobody was surprised when we pulled up, and there was literally a 10-foot statue of this guy in the front yard. Now, more shocking than that. You think, that's shocking. What could be more shocking than that? The inscription below it said, self-made man. Sadly, it wasn't, but a few years later when the man's whole life and business crumbled, well, even if it hadn't happened in this lifetime, ultimately it burns and nobody remembers it anyway. But the person who's devoted to his own praise, you know, who just wants to be known for his performance, sees himself pre-shadowed in the Pharisaical lifestyle. He sees himself when he reads about the Pharisees, and he doesn't want to acknowledge it because he wants to be convinced that nobody knows. The more a man grows in his hypocrisy, the more convinced he becomes that he has people fooled, the more he does not have people fooled. You know the guy who kind of plays the game, sort of, but when it comes down to the real issues of the Christian faith, he's just not involved. But he's played the game so well, not to the degree that he himself is convinced of any kind of spiritual greatness, but to the degree that he is convinced that he has others convinced. The truth of the matter is he has a higher view of his acting than he does his own character. Jesus goes on here, Luke 11, verse 40, to say, You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? 
But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything else is clean for you. In other words, as Jesus said, out of the mouth speaks the heart. Be certain that what you are giving is reflective of what you are, rather than just an effort to persuade people to think something that really isn't true. Well, the encounter that Jesus has with this man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, in fact, the teacher of the Jews, is really a mind-blowing reality. So we've looked at the artificial character of the Pharisees, and there's so much we could say about that, so much more, and we will next week. But it's important to see that this is the disingenuous condition of the most premier leaders, the religious leaders of the day. And let me give you a list of names today, and I don't think any of these will surprise you, but Kenneth Copeland, uh, Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, you know, lots and lots of people look to these folks as religious leaders. You know, Rick Warren, considered to be America's pastor and has bypassed the gospel. If you've ever read or even given any consideration to the 40 days of purpose or the purpose-driven life, that whole concept completely bypasses the gospel of Jesus Christ. And wow, what an amazing communicator. Anything that you will read from Rick Warren in light of some of the tragedies that he has experienced, never point you back to the gospel. It's always back to his performance. Loves to boast about what he calls reverse tithing. He gives 90% of his salary back to the church. Is that bad in and of itself to do it? No, just like the reality of so much of what the Pharisees did was not bad in and of itself. It was the motive behind it. It was the ability to say that we do these things. They boast in their tithing. They boast in their compliance with the law. The influence of the Pharisees was great. In John 18, verse 2, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, Judas is called the son of perdition, and you can say, well, that's all God's sovereignty, and you'd be right, but all things are God's sovereignty. Nothing is outside of God's sovereignty, but the human element of all things is no less real. The reality of one being called to repentance, that he must repent, he must believe, the reality of the call upon man to do that is every bit as significant as God's sovereignty. So don't dismiss the significance of what happened with Judas to it simply being God's sovereignty. Judas was guilty. Judas was greatly influenced by the Pharisees. Pharisees wanted Jesus dead. Judas was the mole. He was the insider. He's weak. Oh, and he keeps the money. He's probably greedy. Let's go with him. And they did. And it worked. And on a human level and in a very real level, the fact of the matter is that Judas was guilty of the death of Jesus by way of taking money from the Pharisees to point out that he was the one. 
So again, you see the artificial character of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and yet completely and solely behind the death of Jesus to the degree that they commissioned one of his disciples to reveal him. Well, the second thing I want you to see this morning is the accidental confession of one Pharisee. The accidental confession of one Pharisee. As I said, Jesus had an encounter with a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. In fact, Jesus calls him the teacher of the Jews, the premier rabbi. He comes to Jesus in the darkness at night, acknowledging that Jesus is from God, but displays an inability to understand the most basic truth of what it means to be a child of God. By the way, this is exactly what would happen if you met with the Pope today. There's absolutely zero interest in the concept of rebirth, of what it means to be born again in Roman Catholicism. It's an absent doctrine. There are many absent doctrines in Roman Catholicism. While Nicodemus' ignorance is on showcase here, Jesus knows the even deeper truths about him. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So back to our text, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this is a magnificent, really an amazing declaration on the part of a Pharisee. Who were the greatest enemies of Jesus? It was the Pharisees. And here one among them is coming to say, you know what? We believe. You have to be from God. There's no way you could do the things you've done unless you were from God. And so while there would be the declarations of blasphemy and a willingness to attempt to kill him, there was a brewing awareness amongst the Pharisees as evidenced in the leader of the Pharisees that Jesus was in fact from God as the Messiah was predicted to be. It goes on to say in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, we won't go into the depth today of what this means, regeneration, rebirth, being born again. We'll deal with that next week. But the point uh, today for now is to say that Nicodemus was inadvertently confessing his ignorance to the degree that Jesus is willing to say to him, do you not even know this? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This would have been mind-blowing for Nicodemus. This would have shattered his thinking, and obviously he's already begun to rethink Judaism. Otherwise, he wouldn't be coming to him and coming to him at night. There's the fear of man. You know, why did he come at night? For the same reason that a lot of people do stuff at night under the cover of darkness. Made it easier. 
Now, you don't want to read too much into this. You don't want to make some sort of hyper-spiritual interpretation of utter and total darkness as it is displayed throughout Scripture and superimpose that on this text. Be careful not to do that. But hermeneutically speaking, it's there for a reason. And in any culture, the worst of things primarily take place in the dark. And so Nicodemus goes at night. Jesus, in verse 6, says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Just a little bit on this today. Again, we'll pick it up more next week. But he says, don't marvel at this. Why does he say that? Because it's the most basic of realities of what it is to be a child of God, that God makes that happen. Not the unborn infant. And so this illustration of rebirth is an obvious analogy pointing to the reality that God causes birth, not the one who receives birth. This should be so simple, and yet there are so many heated discussions over, you know, who really initiates salvation. There are five major illustrations in Scripture that point to this. Here's another one of those five in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound. Right? What does that mean? The wind has an influence on you. But it doesn't blow where you wish it to. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's something that happens to you. And what is Jesus saying to Nicodemus? You've been causing things to happen to you that are not salvific. You've been doing things. Oh, but to be born of the Spirit. Don't marvel at that, Nicodemus. This is the most basic of truth. You don't know this? Who is it? And why would it be that they would continue to pursue the opposite concept? That they brought themselves to the Lord? Who would that be? That would be a Pharisee. It's the hypocrite who wants to rest on his actions, his doing. He wants credit. Jesus says, Jesus says to those folks, don't marvel over the fact that you must be born again. You must be the recipient of new life. It's a lot like the wind. It comes out of nowhere, and you don't know where it goes, but, man, you sure feel the, the effects of it. It's very real. You know that it happened to you. You know that you didn't bring it about. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. I remember he's speaking directly to, face-to-face with Nicodemus. So we're looking at an accidental confession of one specific Pharisee. When I say accidental, I don't mean that he went there accidentally. Obviously, he wanted 
to learn he was beginning to grow less and less confident in the Judaistic system of a man-made religion. And so there was a reason he went to Jesus, but there's nothing in the text that indicates that he went there to make a confession, but he certainly did. Don't you love it when that happens? Don't you love it when that happens? You're ministering scripture to someone. You're doing your best to be faithful to Christ and not draw attention to you, to draw attention to scripture, to bring the word of God to bear upon someone's heart. And they ask a question that exposes their unfamiliarity with that truth. And they're really, legitimately, sincerely interested. And you think, well, that was an accidental confession. Let's keep moving. Let's draw this out. It's the beautiful reality of legitimately biblical counseling that leans exclusively on Scripture. Not man's philosophies, not man's systems, not Judaism, not the legalism of Roman Catholicism. It leans exclusively on the power of the Word of the Spirit of God to bring about change. You don't need to manipulate anybody. You can't change anybody anyway. Your anger, your bitterness, your manipulation, your sour spirit, none of that changes your kids. None of that. might make them scared of you for a while, but none of that has impact on your neighbors. What impacts your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, other believers, what impacts them is your devotion to the pure, clear Word of God in particular, the heavenly things. He says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Friends, listen. When someone is so hung up on this idea that they brought themselves to Christ and they're not willing to acknowledge what Scripture says over and over and over, the reality is you can't get past that. You can't help that person who wants to believe that his salvation is his doing. That's the point here. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, earthly meaning I've given you an earthly illustration. Babies don't cause their birth. People don't bring the wind. If you don't get that, how are we going to get anywhere spiritually? See the problem? That really is, that man-made idea, those man-made ideas, the legalistic ideas that man creates to boost his own self-esteem are the roadblock from legitimate spiritual growth. And many times, they are the roadblock of legitimate spiritual birth. It's hard to know the difference in some folks. But spiritual birth is a work of God. And the one who wants to take credit for it, he might just be an immature new believer, maybe not taught well, but eventually he sees throughout Scripture. He realizes his lack of growth is because he's clinging to this pride-filled, legalistic, self-righteous hypocrisy that says, I measured up. Therefore, Jesus rewarded me. <laughs> this text is really humbling, except for the person who rejects it. See that? The Jesus of the Bible... A true exposure, true proclamation of the Jesus of the Bible will either harden your heart or soften your heart. When you see that you must be born again and you really understand what it means, you become like Nicodemus. <laughs> and maybe you want to go to somebody in the night undercover and say, 
help me understand this. I mean, I got a lot of people looking at me, expecting me. Some of you have acknowledged this. You know, you've, you've come here, you've been exposed to truth, and you got family members, you got large portions of friends in your previous church who are looking at you going, what is wrong with you? What do you mean that God is actually sovereign? And there's this fear of man, and you, but you want to know the truth, and so you meet privately, and eventually you, begin, you start to get bold. You find, you find that God's grace is actually exactly enough, not only for your salvation, but for your growth. Verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who had ascended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see that? Whoever believes in the true Jesus of the Bible may have eternal life. This is an accidental confession. Nicodemus didn't set out that night to go confess his hypocrisy to Jesus. He, he went there to have a conversation, ask some questions, maybe gain a little knowledge, but he was troubled. He was a troubled soul. And every single one of you, within the sound of my voice, was troubled at one time. And you realized that your performance was not only not enough, it was condemning. It was an insult to the God who grants grace freely to all who will receive it. John 19, 38 tells us, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. See, often what starts out as an accidental confession becomes a sincere confession. When the true condition of one's heart is exposed through an exposure to truth by someone who's faithful to deliver the truth, he begins to rethink his spiritual condition. And what may have been an accidental confession is followed up with a sincere confession. The Lord has told us, unless you confess me before men, I will not confess you before the Father. Unless you forgive men, the Father will not forgive you. The exposure of a self-deceived hypocrite will only have an eternal result when he himself, though, is doing the exposing it's one thing to be exposed. It's one thing to be willfully involved in one's exposure. Proverbs 28:13 says, "Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy." Nicodemus found mercy. God took his accidental confession and drew out of him a real 
willful confession as evidenced in his willingness to serve the Savior in his death. May it be that you and I would display that same kind of full, real, willful confession of the person of Christ and his death and his resurrection. Father, we approach you exclusively on behalf of the Savior. And we each acknowledge that we have failed in our performance. We have failed to fulfill the law. So we rest in the one who did not fail to fulfill the law, but about whom you said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. May we increasingly, as we sing to him, find our spiritual condition rooted in who he is and what he has done, that you might be pleased that your glory would be on display and that our joy would be increased in resting in him and not anxiety-filled as a result of trying to perform. And Father, for your glory for the exaltation of Jesus Christ and for the equipping of the saints for effective winning of the lost. We ask these things in Jesus' name.